sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. And with the harp and the sound of singing and with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. Would you take your seats, please? The year was 1979, June of that year. The entire city of Seattle, young and old, men and women, all races, all ethnicities, everyone was gripped by the joy of it all. And just about everyone joined the throng downtown. So I was there. So can you see me? I'm right next to those two bald guys and the grandmother all decked out in, in green and gold. I mean, she was going crazy. <laughs> so I'm talking about the year the Seattle Supersonics won the NBA championship over the Washington Bullets, 1979. Lenny Wilkins and the crew. I mean, what a feeling. <laughs> what a celebration. And as I said, pure, once-in-a-lifetime joy. <laughs> but it happened again in Seattle, didn't it? <laughs> that kind of joy. The Seahawks in 2014. <laughs> Super Bowl champs. I mean, uh, Seattle took to the streets again, celebrating in pure joy, and this time in color. <laughs> Pandemonium, wasn't it? Hundreds of thousands of people crushing in around the Seahawks motorcade as it went by. They were delirious. What a time that was. Now, maybe some of you members of the 12th Man Brigade were there in the midst of this. I mean, what a moment, right? And I looked, I, I, <laughs> but I couldn't find all those pictures of the parade when the Mariners won the World Series. So, but I will keep looking. Okay, so why these reminders of celebrations long, long gone for, for Seattle sports fans? Well, it's because of our psalm, Psalm 98, a psalm of praise and celebration that makes these celebrations turn pale in comparison. I mean, and even when... The Mariners win the World Series. It will be nothing like the celebration in this psalm. Shout for joy. All the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord 
with the harp, with the harp, and the sound of singing, with trumpets, with the blast of the ram's horn. Anything you have, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. (laughs) So why? Why all this singing? Why all this unbridled praise for God? Because, verse 1, he has done marvelous things. Now, maybe sports don't float your boat, (laughs) Uh, and you have to think of some other monumental event to imagine completely abandoning yourself to a moment like, like the one described in this psalm. You know, joining this jubilant thong, banging on a garbage can lid, if that's all you have, throwing confetti, shouting, or shooting off fireworks, shouting with joy until you can barely whisper. That kind of celebration. See, that's what our psalm is describing. And then it goes further. I mean, it's not enough that all the earth join in, all the earth. No, that's not enough. The sea has to join in, and all the creatures in it. Rivers clap their hands. Mountains sing with joy. Why? Because God has done marvelous things. Psalm 98 is part of a very small set of psalms, just Psalm 95 through 100, And these are called the enthronement psalms. God, in these psalms, God is lifted high and he is praised with all the psalmist's might as Lord, as the king of all that he has made. So if you ever have to read uplifting passages of scripture, read these psalms, Psalm 95 through 100. They soar with praise for God. So the enthronement psalms were likely written as Israel was released from captivity in Babylon. Those 70 horrid years they spent uh, ripped from their homes and forced to serve foreign gods in in Israel, I mean in, in Babylon. And they joyfully made their way back home rebuilding the temple and reclaiming their homes and their lives. (laughs) Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 96 and 98 both begin this way. Something so fantastically wonderful had taken place, they wrote a new song to commemorate it. Now, uh, this was in keeping with Israel's long habit of writing songs of celebration with each new experience of God's power and his faithfulness over their lifetime as a people. So how long has it been since you wildly celebrated that 1979 Sonics championship? (laughs) Or that Seahawk Super Bowl win in 2014? How long has it been since those incredible moments of undiluted joy faded in memory and the idea of celebrating them with abandon seemed rather silly. (laughs) I mean, the exciting new thing 
became an old thing, barely remembered now. See, that's how our memories work. A new experience, no matter how wonderful, recedes into distant memory all too soon. That's how our memories work. But that's not how Israel's memory worked. And it's not how the Psalms work either. The Psalms were written and then they were returned to over and over again to keep old memories fresh and alive. (laughs) To keep a, a new song new. So why were they so intentional about keeping their memories alive, memories of what God had done for them, fresh and alive? Well, because memory is the fuel of worship. Memory is the fuel of worship, is it not? If we forget the things God has done for us, his interventions his guidance, his promptings, his tender mercies, if we forget those things, what will prompt us to worship him? What gives our worship focus and substance? So we need to remember what God has done. We need to remember. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, Both the horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. So Moses wrote that song. uh, Following God's great intervention in which he parted the waters of the Red Sea for his people to cross and then sent those waters crashing back down on Pharaoh's army as it tried to pass. So the Old Testament is full of songs written to remind God's people of his acts on their behalf. They were used during worship to keep fresh before them just how God had worked among them. Fuel for worship. Do you write songs? Do you write songs of praise to God when he does something for you? I see some heads nodding, but not not all of us are songwriters, right? (laughs) Do you write anything to help you remember what God does for you? A journal, a diary, scraps of paper in a a drawer? But do you write down what God has done in your life so that you can read it again and again and again, remembering, providing fuel for your worship? Another thing we'll see in the Old Testament to enhance memory, they built altars, small piles of stones, Ebenezer's, they called them, uh, something physical to remind them, uh, to make them stop and remember what God had done at that place or at that time to prompt them to worship him. They built altars. Now, some families we know do that in their homes, uh, in their yards, uh, plaques, engraved rocks, uh, small altars they've constructed. God's work on their behalf stays fresh 
because they have intentionally created ways to remember. Now, all of us could do this. All of us could. And our worship could be enhanced because we remember. Just a thought. So, Psalm 98, a new song written because God has done some new and marvelous thing. Now, here's an interesting thing about this psalm. It isn't just a song about one important memory or occasion of God's action for Israel. It reaches back to past events. And it reaches forward to a a future events that God has promised. I mentioned Moses' uh, song in Exodus chapter 15. Psalm 98 consciously reaches back to the imagery of Moses' horse and rider song with the words uh, from verse 1, where it says his right, right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And then in verse 9, it looks forward to what God will do at the end of time. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. See, the the joy of this new thing God has done for them is connected to something God has done in the past and also connected to something he will do for us all. The future restoration of God's rule to his creation. So this psalm looks ahead into the future to the glorious return of the king. And it's no wonder then, right? It's no wonder when we think of it that way. It's no wonder the seas and the mountains and the rivers will sing right along with us. I mean, we know uh, from Romans chapter 8 that the entire creation right now and forever past has been groaning. It's been suffering under the weight of sin. So Psalm 98 celebrates the day when all of creation will be released from bondage and restored to to gracious rule of God. I mean, hallelujah for that. Way better than a Super Bowl victory or even a World Series championship. So that's our psalm. Psalm 98, an invitation, an urging, really the way it's written, a command to praise God and worship him with all of our might. So how, how, how's that going for you these days? <laughs> Worshiping God with all your might. You know? I mean, beyond some beautiful poetry, does Psalm 98 connect with any part of your day-to-day life? Let me put it, let me put it another way. Is it easier for you to imagine joining a downtown throng celebrating the Seahawks or the Mariners or somewhere for a a, a huge crowd celebrating your favorite political candidate than it is to imagine worshiping God as described for us, commanded for us in Psalm 98? See, if not, if you can't picture 
just as easily as the most incredible celebration you've ever experienced here on earth. If you can't picture joining that kind of throng in worship, you're not alone. This kind of Bible talk uh, for, you know, is totally disconnected for most people, totally disconnected from reality for most people these days. And here are three reasons, I think, why this imagination for worshiping God and our day-to-day lives have such a gap between them. So the first one would be what I call the dumbing down of praise itself. I mean, praise, simply put, has been overdone in our world. Uh, in his, in his, his wonderful little book, uh, Praying the Psalms, Thomas Merton suggests praise is cheap today. <laughs> Everything is praised. Soap, beer, toothpaste, clothing, mouthwash, movie stars, all the latest gadgets that are supposed to make life more comfortable. Everything is constantly being praised. Praise is now so overdone that people are sick of it, he says. And since everything is praised, nothing is praised. Praise has become empty. Are there any superlatives left for God? They have all been wasted on foods, cars, and hair products. Thomas Merton wrote that in 1956. And we've taken things to a whole new level since then. Words lose their meaning, their power through overuse. Even words of praise destined for God. Now, of course, the answer isn't to stop praising God or to stop throwing ourselves into what praise we do offer. No, the answer is to rediscover biblical praise. Biblical praise and throw ourselves into it with all of our might. So, a second reason. The cynicism of our age. Our age has long given up singing songs of praise to God. God is either dead or absent or he never existed and so please just get real, right? As recent as two centuries ago, the the best and the brightest of our artists and our musicians still oriented their creative energies around crafting new and beautiful ways to praise our God. I mean, think of Handel's Messiah or or Michelangelo's Pietà. I mean, not anymore. (laughs) No, now we still worship, but it's not God. I mean, now our only imagination of worshiping throngs completely caught up in celebrating something bigger than themselves, our only imagination of this comes from rock concerts or, or political conventions or, as I've said, the occasional successes of our sports teams. Now, worshiping the living God, it's now a culture or a countercultural activity, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, really, why waste your time in church when you could be at a, on a boat or at a game? I mean, don't be an idiot. You know, oh, 
Our world has grown very cynical about worshiping God. And that affects all of us, even we believers. Then the third thing I think that takes the power out out of our desire to praise is this. We can't picture actually worshiping God this way as depicted in Psalm 98 because it just doesn't match up with our lives. The grind of it, the, 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 the setbacks, the disappointments, the tragedy, the stuff of life. Now, I mean, as believers, I suppose we're glad that Israel experienced God doing some marvelous things way back then and we could use some of that ourselves right now to be honest right and heaven well heaven feels way too far away for us to to um, be of much use for us in the here and now so we do our best to try and worship God right here at church and sometimes sometimes when things are done just right and it's a good song, and the mood hits us, sometimes we catch a small part of ourselves getting caught up in this honest, unbridled praise for God. But generally, worshiping, as in Psalm 98, just doesn't match up with the realities of our lives. Now, here's the thing. This psalm is not attempting to describe the life of a believer. This psalm, with all of its magnificent imagery of praise, it's not attempting to describe the life of a believer. How do I know that? Well, because I know what life was like for God's people when they left Babylon... When this psalm was written, their life was hard, hard for every single person who chose to go back to Israel and start over as God's people. I mean, we know this from reading Old Testament books like Ezra and Nehemiah. We know that post-exilic life in Israel was no heaven on earth. And it was dangerous. And it was a hope-sucking life for those who returned. They couldn't just waltz right back in and reclaim their homes and their farms. They had to fight. And even as they worked on rebuilding the temple, they kept one hand on their swords to fend off the people who had claimed this land in their absence. And then they also had clashes with one another about what to rebuild and when and how to rebuild the temple. And when it was, their, their temple, when it was finally rebuilt, it was such a small, inglorious version of the one those older people remembered <laughs> that the sounds of joy coming from the younger people were equaled by the sounds of weeping coming from the older people. So no, post-exilic Israel when this psalm was written was not God's throne room come to earth. So how, how can they sing like it really was? 
God's throne room. So Psalm 98 is not intended to describe the life of a believer. It is intended to construct our lives, to construct within us a new reality. Psalm 98 is part of God's word in order to build within us a connection to something bigger than this world and its travail that we experience in real life. Something beyond our sight. Something that we can experience just as intensely as we experience those day-to-day realities of life. God is at work. God is at work right now. His mighty hand is bringing victory and salvation to us right now despite what is happening in and around us in our real lives. Uh, David Lewicki, uh, a pastor from New Jersey, captures what God intends through this psalm. He says, in worship, people can imagine, and not just imagine, but feel and know a new reality. God, the king, is at work, and he will make things right again. They sing it, they sing it, and in that moment, it is hope. And moreover, it is truth. It is gospel. See, this is why we pray Psalm 98. It has the power to change the way we experience this world, to construct within us a new way of viewing the world. There is a music of praise built into our very being, each of us. It's placed there by God as he knit us together in our mother's womb. He placed it there so that we could worship him with all our might. It's in there. Now, every now and then, every now and then, something taps into it. Something stirs us. Something fills us with longing. Something leads us to let it rip with our praise. Sometimes it is worship. Sometimes it's the Seahawks. Sometimes it's a wedding. Or sometimes it's just a piece of a song that moves us suddenly and unexpectedly. But it's there. It's in there. This bottled up music of praise waiting within us. We know it. (laughs) And that's the challenge for people of faith like us. To unlock the music already wrapped up in our bones so that we can sing praise to our God in the here and now. We don't have to wait for heaven for Psalm 98 to be true. The music that has been bottled up within us by the cynicism of our world and by the grind of our lives. Do you know who this is? I'd be surprised if you do. 
<laughs> is one of the people I am longing to meet in heaven. This is, our, this is at least an artist rendition of Isaac Watts, the hymn writer. Born in 1674, Isaac Watts wrote over 600 hymns, dozens of which still uh, are among our favorites today. He wrote, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. He wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He wrote, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. And he also wrote this, Joy to the World. <laughs> it's every, one of everyone's favorite Christmas hymns. Joy to the World was not written to be a Christmas hymn. It was Isaac Watts' attempt to rewrite our psalm, Psalm 98, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the reasons I want to sit with Isaac Watts and you know, for some significant portion of eternity, you know, and tap into his heart. He didn't write hymns for their own sake. He didn't write them in order to make his living or to become famous. He was a pastor with a congregation to care for. He wrote hymns to capture in words the glory of God, to give himself and his congregation new songs, to tap into the praise that God designed to flow from us. <laughs> oh, how we need to tap into that praise, to have the music that, const that constructs within us the ability to see what God is doing all around us in our world. That's why we pray Psalm 98. It teaches us to pray for the ability to praise God. <laughs> this praise, has, this ability has been tamped down in us by a fallen world, and so we pray. So to close our service, I want to ask you uh, to stand in just a second and sing a song you've known all your lives. Uh, you just didn't know you were singing Psalm 98. So let's sing Joy to the World together. I mean, yes, this is the first Sunday of Advent, so it seems appropriate, right? But there's another reason. Yes, this hymn has been part of our Christmas celebrations all of our lives, but let's sing a fresh new song this morning. Let's rear back. Let's burst our buttons uh, singing it this morning as a hymn of praise to God and as a prayer that will form us. Let's live in advance that day when every heart, when all heaven and earth, when rivers and mountains and seas will simply burst with praise as they sing to the living, holy God. 